whatever faulty reasoning that you continue to use or the voice in your head, just ignore it and, and get out there and find yourself in these situations where, where greater success can be attracted. Hello, I am Joel Ingram and this is Crisis to Crushing It podcast. Let's dive into this week's talk and I'll help to increase perspective, expand perception and allow you to change your reality. Enjoy the show. Okay, so today on the show, we have Matt Scarfo. Matt is an endurance athlete, potentialist, corrective exercise and human movement specialist. Husband, father and business owner. Fitness and athletic performance expert with over 20 years of credentialed experience. Infinite thinker, collaborator and contributor. Matt teaches and coaches his clients to achieve their absolute best performance, physical or otherwise, using mindful movement, breath work, meditation, somatic exercise and human mechanics. His clients earn a tremendous advantage in all areas of their life by incorporating his methods and teachings and have smashed their preconceived notions of personal potential and is spending a lot of time coaching and counseling addicts in all stages of recovery, enabling them to embrace a mindset of what he calls perpetual recovery, protracting addicts' moments of freedom and showing them how to use the tools they already have to take control of their choices. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's, uh, I know you've uh, you've got a you've just been on a, on a big journey yourself and uh, pushing yourself. But let's dig into straight away what's going on in your world right now. Man, it's been um, last six months have been just as much of a roller coaster for me as I think for for most people. Back um, in March, when so I'm in I'm in New Jersey over in the in the U.S. and uh, back in March our governor shut everything down and, and it includes my business and actually a, a couple of things have changed since the last time that we spoke and um, not least of which is that I had to actually walk away and close my business after after operating it for opening it and operating it for 10 years so made that decision at the end of August it just had gone on for too long and um, the bills started racking up and it was it was a challenge to look toward any mid or long-term future and picture one that wasn't going to be harder than it would have been otherwise, just with all of the, the debt that's racked up and the expenses that continue to rack up with the lack of an income. So I just I decided, rather, I realized that it would probably be best for, for my family and my future if, um, if I just wrapped it up and, um, and, and got out of it. So I'm a little bit of a free agent right now, and you know they say that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And I'm trying to spend much of my time being as productive and and, and useful as possible. But um, it, it's a challenge to to fill so much free time now with with things that would end up being productive. And I think that that's probably my greatest uh, that's probably the greatest challenge that I have right now is just keeping busy. I, I suppose it's a blessing and a curse because I've got all the time in the world to do what it is that I want to do and, um, and and make all my dreams come true. But at the same time, it's, uh, you know, if you get, if you're given too much of anything that oftentimes ends up being too much of, of anything. So um, I'm kind of stuck in that, that, that space right now where everything's in flux and, um, and the world is my oyster. I've got all the opportunity in the world. And sometimes that's a, that's a frightening, that's a frightening prospect. So relate to where you're at right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people can, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, can we dig a little bit back into that? Like, 
So what was the, what was the emotions going on for you? That, that was obviously a big decision. Ten years invested, uh, and then you, you know closing down in the, the stress and mounting bills. What what was going on for the for you? What was showing up in your everyday life that made you aware actually something needs to change? You know, it was um, the emotions. It, it's still anger. It's still rage. Um, I am certainly a Christian, so um, I, I pray for my enemies and I don't hold grudges. I just I, I look forward way more than I look backwards. So um, I, I see this as an opportunity to, to really take a quantum leap and, and move forward. But you know, back so we in New Jersey, our governor had issued a state of emergency and uh, basically shut everything down other than what he deemed to be essential business. Um, needless to say, my business was not considered an essential business, at least not by his standards. Um, my my three young kids and my wife would argue otherwise, but uh, you know, they're just a, a drop in the bucket. So originally for us, it was supposed to be uh, 14 days to flatten the curve and um, be sure that we don't overburden the healthcare system and that we had the resources in order to treat what at that time was a very unknown and, and unpredictable virus. And I think that the overreaction was certainly necessary, but here we are. Well, I mean, at the time that I closed the business, it was a hundred and some odd days that we had been still trying to flatten the curve that had flattened itself. And, um, day by day as the time would take on, I began to realize that um, this is probably going to be more of a protracted event than a two or, or perhaps four week thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm looking at all the bills continuing to rack up. And, and because there was so much uncertainty with it, the, the greatest problem was trying to figure out what to tell my creditors. You know, I've got business software that I've got to maintain. Should I call them and tell them to put it on hold for three months or should I continue to leave that subscription open and get billed for it every month. And um, I opted for the latter because there was no indication otherwise that this was going to go on for so long. So operating expenses such as that began to pile up and um, rent. Obviously, the landlord still wants to get paid. And our landlord's a very generous guy, a very good man. And I was communicating with him throughout the entire shutdown. And our conversations were pretty pretty standard, you know, tell him that uh, I don't know how much longer I can hold my breath for. I know that I owe him money and I know that he's a businessman. Um, the longer that this goes on, the more money that I'm going to owe him. And um, I don't know how I'm going to be able to reconcile that at some point. I had just renewed my lease for an additional five years back in February. So if uh, anybody that knows commercial real estate knows that if I were to break that lease, uh, I'm going to owe my landlord for all five years. And um, it, it was beginning to turn into a pretty stressful situation. I'm looking at my kids and you know, they know that dad's not going to work. My wife is a teacher. She's an elementary school teacher. And um, you know, we, we, became, we became comfortable living modestly on a two-income arrangement. And then all of a sudden, the carpet was ripped out from underneath us. So kids began asking questions about holidays and birthdays and Christmas. And I'm, I'm looking at them in the eye and I'm I'm lying to them and I know that I'm lying to them and I'm telling them that, you know, everything's going to be okay. This is really no big deal. You know, that's, I don't think that in in some regards, I I feel like men don't get enough credit for, for taking the barrage of bullets and making sure that our children can live happily and innocent lives during their youth. Um, and, And it's a very painful thing to have to lie to your children. So that was a struggle for me as well. 
But after three, four, five months began to go by, I'm I'm looking at my at my bills. I'm like, man, I owe I owe like eighty thousand dollars to my landlord and other creditors. I'm I'm 41 years old. When I got into this business, this particular business back about 10 years ago, I didn't plan on doing this until I was 50. I, my exit included, you know, me sometime in my early to mid forties, making a departure that was a little bit more on my terms and, and certainly more favorable where I'd be able to take my family and, you know, move up or at least do something else. And, um, this really put a, a damper on that whole thing. So, yeah, it was certainly a struggle. You start to wonder, are there things that I could have done differently where I would have been able to weather the storm better and, and manage it and come out on top? And, you know, bygones are bygones and you can't really change the past. So, um, you know, we we probably put a, end up putting a lot of blame on ourselves that, that we don't deserve. Um, and, I, and I certainly did that. So come the end of August, I had a conversation with my landlord again. And I said, I think um, there's there's got to be a way for for me to end my suffering and and begin to plan for a future that includes one of making a livelihood and making a living for my family and not just being an indentured servant to my landlord 70 grand you know he kept telling me if just reopen and we'll worry about it when you reopen i don't want you to stress about it right now but i was stressing about it right now because eventually i was going to have to pay the piper and um, at that point, I had just told him, there's got to be a way out of this that doesn't add insult to my family's injuries. So what can we do? So he and I had worked out an arrangement that was um, it was it was better than I had, I had, I had hoped it would be uh, it still consequential. But it, it ended up being better than I than I had imagined it would have been um, still hurt. But he, he certainly held all the cards and, and he didn't take advantage of that. But during that whole thing it's you know i'm worrying about the right now i'm worrying about the future of my family and i'm also worrying about the future of my career this is something that i've invested you know 10 hard hard years of work into to build and to grow into what was beginning to turn into you know quite something and um, to literally have somebody walk by and just unplug the game while i'm playing it uh, certainly doesn't make me want to go back and end up playing that same game so i i've looked at it as, a, as an opportunity to go from from having everything evaporate that I feel like I've ever worked for at least uh, at, at least in a business sense and um, looking at the raw skills and the raw talents that I've earned and I've experienced over the years and uh, and figuring out how exactly am I going to leverage that because this is I know this isn't going to be the end of me. I know that this is going to be something that I'll look back on and say, thank God that that happened. Or thank God that it happened. There. But um, you know, the, the challenge I think for myself and for everybody out there that's in the same position is, well, what do we, what do I do next? I'm a, I'm a fitness professional. I'm, a, I'm an expert at my craft. I've been at it for over 20 years. I can't go from doing this to going and, and working construction and never looking back and you know leaving my whole fitness career behind because this is something that i've invested so much time and effort in and i, and I bring a lot of value so uh, I'm, I'm staying the course um my goal is to continue to help people and continue to bring value to people's lives and change their lives and uh, now it just gives me an opportunity to do that with a different format and hopefully uh that becomes clearer and clearer as the days go by and hopefully it continues to do so nice man um, something you said there that was quite interesting. Um, 
when you had those, uh, you become aware that there was a conversation that needed to be had because you'd reached that point with your landlord. Mm-hmm. I bet there was all sorts of stories buzzing around. There's obviously a tipping point which caused you to have the discussion. There's got to be a way that we can, you know, not add insult to my family's injury. Mm-hmm. What was the thoughts going on, like worst case scenario, and and how did you, how did you eventually navigate that to the the other side of that process? That's an awesome question. Um, you know, in 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 some ways, it felt like I was initiating a breakup. Um, in some ways, it felt like I was initiating a breakup with somebody who had all of my stuff in their house and my car in their garage and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of my belongings in their house and, and hoping that they not only just hoping that they that that would be enough to satisfy the end of our relationship instead of them taking me to court and, and making this extremely terrible thing. I mean, my rent ballpark was about $9,000 a month and you, you extrapolate that over the course of another five years. So that's 60 months. <laughs> that's over half a million dollars. Excuse me. That's, um, it, it, I became fearful because I, I don't have any other debt otherwise. My my credit's good. My wife and I work very, very hard to find a, a good solid footing when it comes to credit and you know, finances and to stare down the barrel of a $600,000 loaded gun and wonder if, if this is going to really just be the end of everything that I've ever thought my future might hold for me. I mean, owing somebody half a million dollars just because some other man decided to close your business is uh, it, it's a scary thing. And it, it, it oozes unfairness. It oozes rage. You know, there's, there's so many negative emotions that are attached to it, but at the end of the day, I was either going to run from it and, and, and not pick up my phone and, and not communicate with the guy, or I was going to appeal to him on a man to man level and say, Hey, listen, you've got kids. I've got kids. We both know that this situation is beyond a lot of people's control, and I'm kind of just, you know, I've, I've lost both my engines. I'm just floating right now, and I don't even have an oar. I'm up Shit's Creek. I don't even have a paddle. I, I'm not looking for a handout. I'm just looking for some some glimmer of hope, some light at the end of this tunnel, and um, and and he seemed to see it that way too. So, you know, picking up the phone to make that phone call, I was terrified. But I actually on my desk, I have a picture of, uh, of my oldest daughter staring at me. It's one of my favorite pictures of her I'm looking at. Her. And I just pictured her saying to me, you know, Dad, you've got to make this OK. So I put on my sales hat, my negotiating hat. And, um, and I, I really had that conversation, not on behalf of me and my dash dreams and my, you know, my uncertain future, but more so for my children and my wife that, that depend on me to do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. And, um, you know, that's one of the other pieces of being, you know, a responsible adult, or as some would say, you know, as, as a man, as a man's got to do a man's job. And if that's stand in front of an oncoming train and hope that it stops in time, you know, that's what I was going to have to do. And there was my moment and, um, and, and it worked out, you know, it's, uh, I do a few things every day I wake up, I, I do a few affirmations, one of which is that today is a new day. Uh, today begins anew and I'm a new man. And the second thing is that I will greet this day with love in my heart and I will meet every single person. And in my head, they won't see me say it, 
but in my head, I'll tell each person that I love them before I start a conversation with them. And that tends to set a tone of, of, of trust and of empathy and reminds me that this person that I'm talking to is a human being and not an analog of a human being. And I feel like I'm, I'm talking really more soul to soul than I am person to person when I do that with people and I greet my day that way. And um, I feel like that really paid itself off in dividends when I had that, that conversation with my landlord. And uh, incidentally, everything I'm, 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 I'm where I would want to be everything considered and all of the events that have taken place as bad as it's been. I'm, I'm, I'm in a perfect place right now to do something and to use this as a springboard and catapult myself to that next level so long as I look at it as though my business, at least for the last 10 years, have been holding me back from doing what it is I've been put here to do, um, while giving me a taste at the same time of, of what it is I should be doing. Now that I am untethered and I'm unbound by that ballast and I'm not dragging my anchor anymore, I feel like I'm free. You know, the cage door has been open and now I'm now I'm I'm permitted to fly. And the world is a pretty big place when you've been inside of a 3,600 square foot box for the last 10 years and, and hustling and you know, slinging weights to, to make a living. I feel like my value can now be, can now be magnified and can now be scaled and brought to, um, brought to more people. So it's, uh, it, it was terrifying, but I knew that there was something on the other side of this. I was just hoping that I had the opportunity to experience that. And fortunately, it seems like I, I am. What do you think is your greatest insight in going through that for yourself personally? My greatest insight—it's pretty ironic because I, one of, one of the greatest things that my father has ever taught me. My father's a really good man, but he's a really tough man. And um, ever since I was a kid, my father would tell me, "Don't go into this life thinking that anybody owes you anything, because nobody owes you shit." And, um, and it's true as, as sad as it is, because, you know, we're, we're human beings and we're communal creatures and we, there, there is an arbitrage, there is an exchange of so many things between us at the end of the day, everybody's looking out for themselves as, you know, as we would expect them to. So when having this conversation with my landlord and and conversations with other creditors, it was, I was going into it knowing that, you know, the, the worst case scenario is probably the most likely scenario and that's self-preservation. Um, I don't have any leverage. I have zero leverage. I've lost it all. And I'm really just left to the whims and the inclinations of whatever the personality is that I'm talking to on the other side of the phone. So going into it, realizing that nobody owes me shit and being really prepared for the worst and hoping for, you know, something better than that. It was, um, you know, the, the insight that I gleaned from it was even though nobody owes you anything, I think that there's a tremendous amount of empathy out there. And people that want to see their, they, people that don't want to see their fellow, their, their fellow humans suffer in, in any needless way. And, they, and I think that a lot of people have seen that this has been um, unnecessarily unfair for a lot of people and, and they're doing what they can in order to help everybody just get through this together. So even though nobody owes me anything, um, I certainly feel as though I have a debt to pay after so many wonderful people coming out and, and making sure that that this isn't as bad as it could have been nice man nice so it, it's it's funny and it's also interesting the fact that you say like the the gym was an evolution uh, of you pursuing something you were interested in mm-hmm. um which then turned into a box and you know by your own words like 
it's, it's your own anchor, it's your past, and now you can fly. You, I'm guessing you haven't always had that mindset. So let's get back to the, to the start of this story, maybe primary age, or I don't know what they call primary over there, but sort of like, you know, nursery, as uh, single figures, seven, eight years old. What's going on for Matt then? Can you hear me okay? I think I just yeah. lost you. Okay. So I'm I'm sorry. You had asked me um, about like being being a child in kindergarten. I didn't hear the rest of your question. Yeah. Sorry. So I said um, basically the fact that the mindset that you've now uh, adapted since this event and as you've been growing yourself over the last years, you haven't always had that mindset. And and the business that you created with your gym and everything, and it was the last ten years, that was a progression from a, a previous math. But if we skip right back to the start of that story in kindergarten, what's what's the story there? What's going on for math there at that point? Oh man, so I'm, I'm, I guess this is going to be the first time I'm really trying to talk through this. So uh, I've got an older brother. Uh, my brother is four and a half years older than I am. At least in our family, that was just enough age difference in order for us to be really part of two different generations. And uh, we weren't particularly close when I was growing up. And um, I felt like I I was always playing catch up or I was always living in a shadow. And for me, it was important to to find something that I didn't have to compete with him in and and shine in my own right. And you know, so where he played baseball, I played soccer. You know, he listened to, you know, Metallica. I listened to Motley Crue. It was just like it was always just just far enough apart where where I could have my own identity, but but I didn't stray too far from home. And I think something interesting that with regard to a lot of, I don't know if it's gym owners, but I I know certainly with a lot of weightlifters, and this probably isn't very much of a secret. We're very self conscious, or at least we are when we initiate our relationship with exercise and weights we don't do it necessarily because it makes us feel better we do it because it makes us look better which makes us feel better so there is a certainly a very substantial vein of of ego that's involved with it and 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 we are i think generally more solitary creatures we go to the gym we work out we want to grunt we want to scream sometimes people like to do that with a partner um me like many other people we like to do it alone it's it's really just me against myself i'm not doing it to showcase i'm, I'm doing it to to really i guess kind of punish the, the voices that are in my head and 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 prove everything that i thought ill about myself wrong so as a kid i I was always self-conscious. I had, you know, I had glasses, I had braces, I was skinny, I was dorky. And, um, though I was popular, I was more popular because of the attention that I sequestered as opposed to the attention that just naturally gravitated towards me. Um, I had, I was a class clown. I did a lot of things that would force people to look in my direction as opposed to them just naturally paying attention to what I was doing. So, I guess finding that box, that 3,600 square foot box, which is where I made my living and, and really where I made my life for that 10 years, um, it, it, it started out as a, as a trajectory that you know, my, my life was going to take me through this. And I thought I had the end game figured out, but it turned out that 
it ended up being a really safe place for me for, you know, after probably the first four or five years, I became a little complacent in, in the direction of the business. And I got more wrapped up in everything that happened inside of the walls instead of all of the potential that existed outside of the walls. So I found myself working in the business instead of on the business. So that just began to compound year after year. And I, and I feel, I think I mentioned it before, I feel as though the, the shutdown and, and the eventual loss of the business is a blessing in disguise for me. It was, you know, I had wished and I had hoped and I had prayed that that there was something greater and that there was something bigger out there for me. And, um, and, I, and I feel like my wishes and my prayers were answered in a very weird way where, okay, well, if this is what you want, then this is what you get. Here's all the freedom that you've ever hoped and prayed for. Um, but you've got to let go of everything that you thought you knew before. So, you know, losing the business, um, I think eventually I'll, I'll figure out a different way to, to, to say that other than losing the business. But, um, I, I think that that was the best thing that can happen to a guy like me coming from being such a young kid who was rather introverted. I was, I was awkward. So I would do things that, that forced people to pay attention to me. Now I'm more worried about my kids. I don't want so much attention or at least not in the same ways. I just want a great and happy and healthy future for my children and and now as a dad you know this you know we would do anything for our kids and, and i'm looking at this now is like well all eyes are on me not not the eyes of everybody that's in the classroom not the teachers not not anybody else it's the four most important sets of eyes that could be and those are my three kids and my wife who are paying attention and hoping and praying and confident that this is this is where i'm going to shine and um, I, I think it'll be an interesting flashback that you know once i've realized that i've gotten to that next level and that I've, I've began to write in the pages of the next chapter of my life comparing that to the very few first pages that i had written back in preschool and kindergarten and elementary school i, I think there's going to be a stark contrast and i think there's just going to be some romanticism there it's going to be uh, i think it'll be quite a beautiful story Okay. Um, something you said, I piqued my interest then. You said um, about the punish the voices in my head. Hmm. Uh, do you want to explain that one a little bit more? <laughs> Man, I, I hope I'm not the only one out there that has these. No, um, you're not alone. <laughs> all right, good. So, you know, that I've, I, I don't know. It's a blessing and a curse. It's it's never a quiet room in here. There's always something going on. There's always a conversation or an argument, and and it's interesting because that voice has evolved over the years, and and I've I've beaten that voice many times, and the voice has actually changed. I'm not crazy, I, I swear to that, but um, you know these conversations that take place sometimes that voice in your head tries to talk you out of the things that you know that you really want to do, but you're hoping that somebody convinces you not to. Um, I've beaten that voice a number of times and, and I've, I've gotten finally to the point where the voice in my head is my greatest ally and not my greatest enemy. Um, I don't know if that's a matter of maturity. I don't know if that's something that, that just happens naturally with time, but these voices do simmer up to the surface every now and again. They're the voices of doubt. They're the voices of failure. They're the voices of regret. They're the voices of, uh, you know, every conversation that at least I've ever had with myself during any of the the infinite moments that I've had in my life, whether it was 
you know, at the beginning of a race or a personal challenge or a conversation or whatever it is, depending on, I guess, our mind state and depending on our, our, our inner strength at that time, some of these voices come back to haunt us. And, um, and those are the voices that I think, the, well, those are the voices that, that I've set out to, to destroy. And I, I do it a lot in my own fitness. I do it a lot in my own workouts, but you know, these are also practical voices too. The voices that don't want me to sit down in front of my computer and, and put a four or five hour block of writing or collaboration down. These are the voices that try to sometimes keep us away from, from the things that we know that we need. And um, they're the voices that, that want us to be comfortable. It's so funny because the shirt that I'm wearing actually says comfort wants you dead. And, um, and I love that. Yeah. And I, and I feel like this, you know, this last few minutes of the conversation, I mean, that that's really what it is. These voices in your head just want you to sit here and, and rust from the inside out. And, and I'm not okay with that. So I mean, we, we, we could talk about those voices all day long. I'm sure we'll end up coming back to them. I know that we've got a few really interesting things to talk about. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll come back because there's something else you said there I'd like to dig in on. Um, also, when you mentioned the business, you said um, working in the business, not on the business. I was first exposed to that, I think, when I read the e-myth. Um, mm-hmm. So what does working in the business look like? Working in the business looks like um, plunging toilets, wiping down counters, doing a lot of the busy work that really should be delegated out. Uh, we should, as business owners or as managers or as supervisors, we should be doing more of the high value stuff. Uh, and uh, I think we often find ourselves in the minutia of the low value stuff because it's easy. It feels like we've actually accomplished many things when we really haven't done anything. And many of the things that we find ourselves doing are done in tedium and they're done in just an effort to, to feel like we've been productive, but not really to invest many of our own energies and resources into and in contrast working on the business would be networking uh, really outside of the walls of the uh, networking and, and marketing and sales and all the things that are meant to to grow that business not just to keep it operating so I, I guess that might be one of the delineating factors would be you know working in the business is keeping it operating and working on the business would be to invest your time and your resources and, and to getting it to grow nice okay that's great. I can imagine it's, it's going to be people going through something very similar. Um, and, and it makes so much sense that we can get ourselves and our mind into a busy state because it's, it's almost like an addiction where you you need that dopamine hit that comes with achieving. Yes. And those minutiae, yeah. the jobs mm-hmm. which could be achieved so quickly, it gives you yeah. that boom, right, that's that done. Next. <laughs> Pretty yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's being able to step back from that and become aware of that, I think is, is, is it changes the picture and it changes where your focus can, can lay. The next part then is where you said, like being able to do the networking, the marketing and the sales. How do you then put ourselves in a position where we're able to focus on? Because those are like those topics scare me. Networking, marketing and sales. Marketing, I know nothing about. I don't think mm-hmm. about sales. <laughs> Networking, I used to be really awkward and uncomfortable with, but I'm I'm getting better. I've got an affirmation I say, which is I'm highly pleasing to myself in the presence of others. 
and that has sort of built me up a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, I'm starting to believe that now. You know, I, I feel like I am confident in front of other people. But how do you actually know that when you're actually going to approach maybe those topics, networking, marketing, sales, how do you keep it focused without procrastinating on the learning? Does that make sense? It does. Um, naturally, when so when I opened this business 10 years ago, I was largely the only one that was there. I, I did everything. I was uh, there every waking moment that the gym was open or that we were staffed. And uh, it turned out for the first three years, it was something like 94 and a half hours a week. I didn't get to see very much of my oldest and during her first year or two on this planet because I was I was too busy working and, and trying to grow the business at that point while I was doing a lot of the minutiae within the business. And I had to do all the cleaning myself. I had to fold the towels. I had to count the register in and out. I had to make photocopies and do all that. So I was really trying to serve two masters. Um, I wish I knew then what I know now, and, and that would be trying to get out of working in the business as fast as I can and into working on the business. And I had a few people that I had spoken to. Um, one gentleman in particular actually owned a CrossFit box over in the UK. And he said one of the greatest things he could have done and he did a few years ago was to hire help. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody's going to do it the way that I do it. So then you have to train them. But that's going to be your the next level that you achieve can't be achieved unless you delegate some of the lower value easier things to to somebody that would do those things and i didn't believe it until uh, i think i had my first employee around four or five years in business and um i still had to keep myself from doing their job again for whether it be because of the dopamine hit or the, the feelings of success uh, also to your point it's it's a scarier place out there to go and deal with the many different personalities and conversations that you really should be having um, and you could really feel that same level of success by not doing those things and, you know, looking at some of the equipment that you just spent hours cleaning and it looks brand new and great. That's a job well done. But was that really worth what you value your own time? At? So I think in large part, it has to do with putting off the gratification because there's not going to be with the networking and the marketing and the sales. I think that the feelings of success often come, they're delayed. They're, they're not so immediate as, as many of the things that you would accomplish by working in the business. So you might have to talk to four or five different people and deal with the rejection of four or five different people before you get one successful sales call. I mean, that's just what sales is. But just the prospect of having to deal with failure four or five times and varying degrees of failure. You don't know how that conversation is going to go. It might be, no, thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. Or it might be, that's ridiculous. I would never pay that much for something like that. You know, those things hurt if you take them personally. And and even seasoned salespeople every now and again get these feelings of inadequacy and failure when, they, when they've when got their heart set on a call and they're going to go in there and they're going to give it everything they've got. And then all of a sudden it just falls apart. So it's it's a scary place out there beyond the reef if you've ever watched uh, moana you know out beyond the reef it, it's it's frightening because things are a whole lot more unpredictable but that's really where the big fish are so to really just kind of turn off whatever faulty reasoning that you continue to use or the voice in your head just ignore it and and get out there and find yourself in these situations where where greater success 
can be attracted to you. And that's not going to be done in my case, you know, cleaning a treadmill for three hours. That's going to be done out there shaking hands and talking to people and finding out really what they need and and figuring out either A, how to take what I have to, to satisfy that need or to create something that would satisfy that need. That's That takes work. That takes time. That might take days or even weeks to come up with something that, that they may or may not even decide to buy at that point. But, and that's where I think a lot of the fear lies is, you know, why would I be wasting my time doing something like this when I can feel successful and do something like this? So that was probably the hardest part of, of growing as a business owner was forcing when I noticed that I was doing something that I, that I pay somebody else to do and that they do very well, um, to stop doing that reestablish my my delegation protocol and actually delegate that task out there so I can focus more on the higher value things. Because if nobody's doing the higher value things, you end up in a position where I felt like I was for a period of time and that's trapped inside of my own head. Why isn't this growing? Why aren't I progressing at the same pace that some of my competitors are in the same market? Why aren't I doing so much better than I thought I would. And then you end up realizing that you've missed opportunities. For for example, um, every month or so, I would get an email about an auction uh, from a fitness facility somewhere in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, that had closed. And they're getting rid of all this equipment at auction prices. And the last time I saw an email like that might have been a year or 18 months ago. And I'm saying to myself, man, if only I was in a better position. Well, I'm going to create that better position for myself. So that way, when the opportunity presents itself again, I'll be able to capitalize on it. And then that opportunity presents itself again. And if I wasn't cleaning toilets or detailing an elliptical or making photocopies, and instead, if I was out there making sales and figuring out a better way to partition my money, I would have been able to take advantage of such a good deal on such great equipment, but, but I didn't. And, and I didn't again, and I didn't again. So for me, that was always a slap in the face and a pretty vivid reminder of, of me investing my time and my efforts in places that, that I would have been better suited for somebody else who worked with me to, to invest their time and their efforts. But, but for one reason or another, it was just extremely hard for me to bridge that gap. So um, eventually I became successful at it. Eventually I, I think I, I, I mastered it more or less. But um, you know, really, by the time I was able to take advantage of all that, I, uh, you know, the business had shut down. So you know, it's just bad timing and, and a whole lot of regret, but you know, I, I try not to deal with regret too much. It sounds like it's, it's uh, prepared you nicely for the next phase. Um, I hope so. <laughs> you know, it's uh, something you, 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 you brushed over very quick then was about turn off your faulty reasoning. Can you, like, and I know, like, with what you do, uh, like your recent run, which we'll go into in a minute, um, is a way that you must be doing that. Would you, would you mind sharing, and maybe go into the story of what you've just achieved? Sure. So, to turning off that faulty reasoning, I, it's very much like jumping in a cold pool. If you dip your toe in the water, it's just going to be another data point where you can argue against jumping into the pool because the water's cold or you can just get on the diving board you know you're not going to freeze to death you know you're only going to be in the water at most for 10 seconds you can get right out so you just take the plunge and you find yourself in that situation where 
you were had you approached it slowly and more gingerly, you would have been able to talk yourself. You would have given yourself ample opportunity to talk yourself out of it. So, what I've learned to do is is not is to skip all of that and and get to the point already and jump in and deal with it after I've already found myself there. And and I coach my clients in very much the same way. Where it's just having a hard time getting my motivation. Um, I haven't run in like a week and a half and it's just so hard for me to get my shoes on. Like, what do I do? Say, don't think about it. Just put your shoes on and find your ass out on the street running. Just turn it off. Get, get out there. Once you find yourself in the mix of it, your direction's already changed. Your energy has already changed. Your commitment's already changed. So put your ass in the situation that you, that you know that you should be in, but you don't want to, but, but you're, you're finding way too many opportunities to talk yourself out of just stop and go just, just get your ass there. So that was um, kind of leads me into, I guess what you were implying was uh, so back at the end of May, I decided to run from my house, which is in Northern New Jersey to our nation's capital in Washington, DC, which uh, is about 411 kilometers away. I'm, I wasn't in, an endurance runner or an ultra runner or a distance runner up until this time, it was, it was a formidable task, I think by any measure. And uh, considering that I hadn't run very much distance prior to this, it was, uh, it it was quite a feat. And and I knew that it wasn't impossible, but I knew that it wasn't going to be easy. And, And the reasoning that, that I had used was, you know, during, during the 1800s, there was a gold rush here in the United States where everybody went to California, Northern California. Somebody had found gold in the mountains and everybody and their mother just kind of packed up everything from the East Coast and went to the West Coast to, to look for this gold. Now, they didn't have cars. They didn't have, you know, a lot of them didn't take trains. They, they walked it. And um, I'm thinking, well, if, if they can walk it, I can walk it. And if 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 our fitness is any indication of our abilities, then, you know, some people would be able to walk it faster than, than some other people. And as long as I could find a certain speed that wasn't destructive and was manageable, that was somewhat faster than a walk, I could really cover any distance as long as I wasn't falling apart while I was doing it. And uh, I put that in my head. I had run it by my wife who uh, thought I was absolutely crazy. Now, before I had decided to run to DC a month prior. I decided to run from my house to the state's capital in Trenton, Trenton, New Jersey, which is about 90 kilometers away. Um, now, just prior to this, I had never, I hadn't even run a marathon. This was just something that I said, I've got all day. And if it takes me all day to do it, it'll take me all day to do it. So I ran the 90 kilometers in about 12 hours. And, um, that gave me some assurance that uh, I I could do this again and again, day after day after day and uh, began kicking the idea around in my head. I brought it up to my wife and and suggested that maybe I'll run to Washington, DC. Now this was all in an effort to bring attention to the suffering small businesses in our state and the, the mental states that were being affected uh, people's financial state. um, I mean, suicides and addictions are up all across the country, but particularly in New Jersey because of the shutdown and the loss of jobs and income and changes in family status and such. So I was really running on behalf of them, my community, and trying to bring attention to the fact that people really aren't doing okay with this. And since 
I have a pretty high threshold for pain and I didn't have anything to do in the meantime. I figured I would just, I'd give it a go. And originally I was going to do it. Um, I was going to bring a rucksack with a sleeping bag and a tent. And I was going to camp out on the side of the road as I made my way down there. Uh, but my wife had said that the only way that she would actually let me do it, she had two conditions. Uh, one condition was I wasn't allowed to run when it was dark out. And the second condition was I had to sleep in the bed every night. She said, you've got three children that you need to come home to and we need to make sure that you come home to. So um, I said, all right, that's a, that's a fair compromise. And uh, I packed my shit. I had about so anywhere between 28 and 31 pounds of stuff in my pack. And uh, I left my house at 8 a.m. I think it was a Saturday morning and uh, I made my way. And first day I, I covered about 42 miles. I was pretty impressed with myself. Second day, 38. And then uh, it began to dwindle until uh, until I hit rock bottom. I, I wasn't really, I knew I would find it. I knew that I was going to find a, a moment where it was going to be do or die. And uh, you know, this is the wall of the pain cave that a lot of people talk about. I had never seen it. I had only heard about it. I could only imagine what it was going to be to experience it. And um, I was completely wrong in what I supposed it was. And um, I could tell you that it's uh, it was a wonderful thing to actually finally get through that. And you know, I mean, in there, geez, I mean, the voices, the shit that you, the shit that you thought you had reconciled a long time ago, and you didn't have to answer for ever again. Uh, at the lowest of the lows, those voices come back to haunt you, and you've got to deal with them again. And I think that uh, I, I certainly did. <laughs> I certainly did. It was a hell of an experience. When those, I've never ever done anything that challenging. So when mm -hmm. those, when those types of voices come up, they, like you said, it's interesting. You think you've dealt with them, but they just come back up. How does one set about then finally putting it to bed? Is it telling it to shut up and just go away? Or is it like, actually, no, I've just smashed you out the park, so on your way? So uh, feel free to jump in here at any time, because I, I, I have a feeling that I'm, I, I might just end up barreling right through this so the first day i ran from my home to allentown pennsylvania which is about 41 42 miles and i crushed it i felt like a million bucks i got to the hotel i realized what i needed in my bag and what i didn't need in my bag so i was able to offload just you know a couple of the extra things that i brought with me i didn't need four ace bandages i didn't need any of them if i, if I needed one i could have stopped at a convenience store i mean i passed them all the time Second day, um, I ran to, I think it was Reading, from Allentown to Reading, which is like 30-something miles. Uh, day three was to Cutstown, which was 20, 28 miles. And, and the way that we would do this is, so I ran it alone. All I had was this book bag on my back, uh, camel pack with some water in it, and then just you know, whatever I could fit in there to take with me that I knew that I would need. And my wife was home with the children, and each night and each morning we would talk, and she would say, so... I've got a hotel for you at 18 miles and I have a hotel for you at 37 miles. There's nothing in between. You take your pick. So, and that's how I would make my way down there. So I got to Kutztown. I don't remember if it was day four or five, but in any event, there was one day that I woke up 
and my knee was swollen. My left knee was swollen. It looked like I had half of a grapefruit stuck underneath my kneecap. I estimate it was probably about 80 cc's of fluid underneath my knee. I had lost five toenails that they were just worn off or torn off. I had obvious stress fractures in my feet. Tops of both of my feet were black and blue and swollen. Um, I assume I had stress fractures in my shins. I had to put in about 130, 150 miles at this point. My body's not conditioned for distance like that, or at least it wasn't back then. Um, I limped. I couldn't walk normally. Uh, my feet weren't. I had to turn my feet in a certain way, so that way when they hit the ground, my hips didn't just scream at me. And um, these things really began to accumulate at this point. And, and you know, these at, at first, it's all physical, you know, and it's how many balls can you juggle at one time? It's my hips are hurting me. My TFL and my hips were were just damaged, and it hurt for me to even bring my leg forward. But you you talk yourself through that. Just one more step. Just one more step. And then you know my knee is killing me. I couldn't put a lot of weight on my left leg, so I'm favoring, and I'm leaning over to my right. That's another ball that I had to juggle, and I was able to do that. Then my toenails. I, I can see blood coming through the tops of my shoes, and now that gets into my head. How many how many of these balls can be juggled? And the voice that's in your head initially starts off as being supportive and consoling and, and largely not automatic. The voice that's in your head is, is a voice that you're deliberately, you're consciously saying, come on, man, keep going. One more, you know, you got, let's just make it to that tree and you get to that tree. And then it's like, all right, I just got to make it to that tree. I'm seven miles from, from the hotel. I can do that in about an hour and a half at this pace let me just keep going what ends up happening though that ends up becoming another ball that you have to juggle and aside from all of the different physical ailments that you've got and and the pain and the physical suffering you you're putting a lot of your bandwidth into this voice in your head that you're programming it what to say and, and you're programming it to say keep going you got this buddy you know you can do this. You're going to get there. Don't worry about it. Everything is going to be fine. Keep moving. But then you get tired of juggling that ball too. Now these voices in your head aren't supportive and consoling anymore. Now they begin to shift. And these voices go from saying, come on, you can do this one more step. Just put that out of your head for another 10 seconds. Okay. Put that out of your head for another 10 seconds. Now it comes down to Bro, if those toes get infected, you might end up losing a toe. Or you're you're walking on broken feet right now. What happens if if you know something bad down there happens and um, I don't know, you're never able to walk again, or you have to have your foot amputated? I mean, you're you're basically beating a broken machine and expecting it to function. Um, so these voices very gingerly start to try to talk you out of it. And then they become destructive. They now what they're trying to do is is force you to stop doing what it is that you're doing. So these voices from the past end up coming back, and the reconciliation is optional. You don't have to reconcile them. You can you could succumb to them and say, you know what, I'll just go. Somebody can come pick me up, and, and this will be it. But these voices go from being supportive and trying to talk you through it to you know what, man, 140 miles is a pretty long way. Like you should be really proud of that. Um, you would have never been able to do this. That, you, know, you should, you should feel like this has been a success. Um, 140 miles is, is, is pretty far. You know, if, if those feet don't heal, you're never going to be able to carry your kids again. You're not going to be able to coach your kids soccer. Again. Um, 
all the way to remember when you didn't get that did not finish at the Spartan race in Killington. Maybe you're just not cut out for this shit. Remember when in third grade you cheated and you, you know, and you won and nobody knows that you cheated. It's because you suck and, and that this isn't your stick and that you shouldn't be doing things like this. Maybe you should find something else to do. This was a bad idea. To other deeper, darker things that nobody knows about you but you. All of these voices come to the surface. And that's more painful than the physical pain. As a matter of fact, while I was fighting those demons, I don't think I felt any physical pain at all. It was all emotional. So I was... There was one day, it's about 100, and, I don't know, 140, 150 miles in. I was I was entering a town. It was called Bird in Hand, Pennsylvania, and uh, it's all cornfields out there. And interesting. Let me digress for just a moment. Uh, rather, let me go off on a tangent for just a moment. When when I started running, I would find these things along the way. They were totems, if you would. So I found a little piece of. Uh, a corn kernel on the road and it was painted and my daughter my oldest daughter she does crafts and matter of fact one of the crafts that she did last year was she painted ears of corn for halloween for thanksgiving so when i saw this i saw this as a sign from the universe that that i'm on the right path not just on my way down to washington dc but just in life right i wouldn't have found this unless unless i was here right now this is where i'm meant to be and i know that because i found this so i put it in my pocket and then I would come across a Nerf gun dart that was the same exact Nerf gun dart that my son shoots me in the back of the head with all the time. So I'm like, all right, so that's my son. This is a message from my son. Then I would find heart-shaped things, whether it was a, a heart-shaped hole in the asphalt in the road or a heart-shaped rock or, or a heart-shaped cloud. I'm like, okay, that's my wife and that's my youngest daughter. So I'm finding all these things along the way that would that were letting me know or at least giving me the impression that I was on the right and I called them breadcrumbs, right? So this is, this, um, you know, Hansel and Gretel. I'm finding these breadcrumbs along the way. I know I'm on the right path. Once everything started to fall apart, my knees hurt, my head started getting to me and everything else. Fucking craziest thing is I stopped seeing these things. There were no more. And, and I came across probably hundreds of different of these hundreds of totems along the way, corn, darts, hearts, whatever. I stopped seeing them when I was in my lowest of lows. And, and there was a period of time as I'm getting into Birmingham, Pennsylvania, where I hadn't seen one in, in miles, in days. I'm walking on the side of the road and I'm crying hysterically because I didn't want to continue doing what I was doing. And I was hoping that some farmer would drive by and say, son, you don't look like you're from around here and you look like you're in really bad shape. Let me take you home. If somebody were to have said that, I probably would have taken advantage of that and gotten in the car. And I was hoping that they would do that. I wasn't praying for it because I know that prayers get answered. I was hoping for it. it just in like, you know, the 80% chance that this shit might happen. I just hoped that it would. So that never happened. But I, I, but I really hoped that it would. I'm limping. Um, it was about one o'clock in the afternoon. I think I only covered about six miles. I was moving at about a mile an hour. I was limping. I was just too deep in my head, crying hysterically. My phone rings. It's a friend of mine. Now, this happened like right around the time. This was probably the day after the whole George Floyd thing happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Um, 
So, you know, things are starting to boil in America, particularly up in the Northeast and all of the metro areas. My phone rings, and it's a friend of mine. His name is Christian. His name is Christian. He's a black friend of mine, and I've known him for years. And he and I disagree on a whole shitload of things. But, but, but as a man, I love this guy. And as a man, he loves me too. And we get along probably better than we should, but we're soulmates in a way. My phone rings, and it's Christian. Now, I haven't talked to Christian on the phone in like three or four years. Not that we're not friends, we just, you know, life takes you in different directions. So seeing that he's calling me, I didn't, I had to answer the phone. I didn't know if something was wrong. He hasn't called me in a long time. I felt compelled to answer the phone. I answered the phone and I'm holding back my tears. I'm sobbing. The word, the first words out of his mouth were, Matt, I feel you right now. I said, what do you need from me? And I I just fucking lost it. (laughs) Crying hysterically. I'm like, who fucking told you to call me? And he's like, you know who told me to call you. And he wants me to ask you, what do you need from me right now? I'm like, bro, how did you know? He's like, don't worry about it. What do you need? And and I said to him, and I've never asked anybody this. I said, I want you to pray with me. And he said, you got it. Calls his son over, a young kid. Holds his son to him. You know, come here, hold my hand. And he says a prayer. Now I'm standing on the side of the road like this. I've got tears streaming off of both of my elbows on the side of a road in Birdham, Pennsylvania. I can see the sky. I can see the house. I know exactly if you could put me there. I'd be like, yep, this is it. I get off the phone with him and I was moving at about 1.1, 1.2 miles an hour for this entire, for that entire leg that day. I got off the phone with him and I felt like the best way that I can explain it is that I was unencumbered at that point. I, my pace picked up to about 7.1, 7.2 miles an hour. And I ran to the next town. I covered that next, I don't know, six, seven miles in, in probably about an hour and nothing hurt, nothing hurt. So I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was the universe or God or, or whatever prevailing energy you feel kind of dictates, you know, how the universe moves. But I get to this town, Birdenham, Pennsylvania. I check in for the day. It was like three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a nice bath. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to nurse my wounds. I'm going to eat. I'm going to wake up tomorrow. It's going to be a new day. I felt good. I walk into the hotel room. First thing I always do whenever I go into any hotel room is before I even put my bags down, I take the Bible out of the drawer and I put it on the counter. Whether or not I'm going to read it doesn't matter. I just take it out and I put it up there. Because I feel like, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, I mean, that's a holy book. Um, I would take any holy book out of the drawer and put it on the counter, regardless of you know whose book it was. And I take the book out and I put it on on the uh, on the dresser. And there's a bookmark in this book. I took a picture of it. I open up the bookmark. The bookmark is set to the book of Matthew, chapter five, which are the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth, and all of those things. And I start hysterically crying while I'm reading this. There's dried tears actually in this Bible of mine. And I read the entire book of Matthew. I know it well. I've read it often. Um, I put it back down. I said, you know what? Kind of like Fight Club. Maybe I've been here before. This is a future me came here, put this in the book because he knew that I would need it when I got here, if I got here. And um, it it just, it felt like it was like there was my next totem. Now, I hadn't seen a totem in quite some time. Talked to my wife. I tell her what happened. Um, I asked her if she talked to Christian. She did not talk to Christian. Um, Christian also assured me that he didn't talk to my wife. And I know now actually that they did not talk 
she wasn't the person or she wasn't the energy or the force that compelled him to call me. I think that he just felt it over the airwaves. And um, that next day, Burdenhand, Pennsylvania, the next town is called Columbia, Pennsylvania. Um, it was 18 miles away. And then the next stop was something like 34 miles away, York, Pennsylvania. My wife calls me in the morning. She says, I have you at Columbia, 18. The next thing I have for you is and I, it's, it's after 30. Uh, it's York, PA. Those are your two options. By noon, I was in Columbia, PA. Just before the Susquehanna Bridge that crosses the Susquehanna River that gets you into, uh, into York, Pennsylvania. I talked to her while I'm on the phone. Um, from the phone just as I'm approaching you're moving I said I don't know I just I felt like something shifted as I'm walking over this bridge and I'm talking to my wife you frozen man if there's a corn kernel can you hear me now yeah you said as I was walking across as I was walking across this bridge yep so I'm walking across this bridge and I look down at the ground and there's a corn kernel that I haven't seen in, I don't know, there's not a cornfield for 20 miles. There's a corn kernel, a painted corn kernel, just like the first one that I saw. 20 feet up, there's another one. I'm laughing hysterically while I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, can you believe this shit? I haven't seen one in so long, and here they are again. And looking back, I equate this as like, this was that famed one set of footprints. So in the distances between the last time I saw one of these totems and this very moment, there was just one, but one set of footprints. And this was the universe that was carrying me through. When I saw this totem again, and this little piece of corn, this was essentially that second set of footprints appeared back into the sand. And I told my wife, I'm like, you know what? I feel like a million bucks. I'm heading to York, Pennsylvania. She's like, babe, you, your knee, what about your knee? What about your feet? I had no more bruising on my feet. My feet didn't hurt. My knee didn't hurt. My toenails didn't look infected anymore. My hips were fine. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to indicate that it's an act of God. It very well may have been or an act of the universe. But the fact of the matter is this, that there was certainly something that I broke through at that point. This was the other side of the pain cave or the other side of the wall. There was this, out of all of the quantum possibilities of that, that exist for any one of us at any point in time, including both of us right now, the consciousness that we observe is the consciousness that we perceive, and that's reality for us. Perception dictates reality. So the fact that after my meditation and after my breath work and after my prayers and everything else, I chose a reality that did not include me not finishing this run, and it could have very well ended that night before. I chose a reality. And, and I was blessed with the opportunity to be able to choose my reality. And my reality was such that these fucking problems that I had didn't exist. And they stopped existing. My reality was that I was going to finish this. There was only one way through, and that is straight through this thing. So I get to York, Pennsylvania. That next day, it was like whatever. It was 34, 35 miles. The next day was 28 next day was 22. I made it down. That second half, the last 100 miles of my run were easier than the first 150 miles of the run when they really should have been the hardest because everything was, you know, starting to fall apart. But something happened and it, and it happened in here and it happened out there where 
I don't know if it was that I was able to put it out of my head for long enough and it just stopped existing or whatever the case was. But my world changed. And not just in that moment, but really for the rest of my life. Um, I've told people that, for one, I, I learned more about myself in those nine days than I have in the 41 years on this planet before that. And two, that when the universe knows, and I use universal guide interchangeably for all your listeners, so I don't mean to offend anybody when I choose one over the other. They're synonymous, at least in my book. When the universe knows that you're fully committed to what it is that you're doing and that you won't be stopped, only when it's sure that you're committed will it conspire to assist you. For example, people pray all day long. I hope I get an A on this test. Please let me get to work on time. I hope that when I get home, I didn't leave the oven on. All of these, all of these little stupid, not you know, with all due respect, these stupid little prayers. The universe can't answer them all. The universe doesn't want to answer them all. The universe doesn't give a shit about your math test. The universe doesn't care that you got into an argument with your girlfriend and you hope she's not banging your best friend. The universe doesn't care about that shit. The universe has bigger fish to fry. And what it does is it, it saves the magic for the people that are do or die. It saves the magic for the people that it knows are fully committed. And the universe had a choice. It had a choice. It was either going to capitulate and let me through or it was going to kill me. Because those were the only two. Those were the only two outcomes that I was willing to accept. My wife had even asked me. She's like, "What about your knee?" I'm like, "I'll I'll do the last 80 miles on crutches. I don't care. I already did 100 and whatever. Last 80 miles on crutches isn't a big deal. It might just take me a little bit longer, but but I know that I can do that now. And the universe knows that I can do that now because I'm committed to it. So when the universe saw that you sees that you're committed to your goals and that you are unstoppable and you understand what the possibilities are death, injury, you know, whatever they are. If you're willing to accept that and you can pass the test and it knows that you are serious, then it gets out of your way. And that's when I saw that little piece of corn on the ground. I saw that next breadcrumb. The universe took all my breadcrumbs away because it said, no, 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 this is the hard part. This is where you're either going to pass or fail. This is what's going to tell me whether or not you are worthy of seeing what what your true potential is. And if you pass this test, I'll give you anything that you want, but this is going to be the hard part. And I got through the hard part so much so that I was committed to crawling the rest of the way if I had to for miles. And the universe saw that I was serious and the universe said, you got it. Those are the prayers that get answered. Those are the dreams that come true. Not the ones that you put on a back burner and you're like, man, I really hope that that happens. And the universe throws a couple of little tests at you and you fail every single one. You pray that you can get up at four o'clock in the morning so you can get your workout. Well, you wake up at 3.40 in the morning just for no good reason. You just wake up, you look at the clock, and you're like, 3.40, I'm going to go back until 7 o'clock. That's the universe tapping you on the shoulder saying, wake up, motherfucker. This is me. You asked for this. I'm here waking you up. Are you going to get up? Or are you going to go back to sleep? You go back to sleep? Guess what? You don't deserve what it is that you're praying for. But if you got up and you showed that you were fully committed and that you're invested in exactly what it is that you hope the rest of your life looks like, that's when the magic happens. So you've got to be committed. You've got to be all or nothing. You've got to be do or die. And you've got to pass that test. I mean, during that first half of the run, I had given up a thousand times, a thousand times I'd given up, but I didn't stop moving. So 
when my body was protesting and my brain had began to turn on me, like, where do you go from there? There's a whole third gear that people don't even realize exists. And it's not in here. It's not in your body. It's, it's in the ether. And for example, while these voices are going in my head and they're saying only they're saying the absolute meanest shit that they could because only I know me and they're saying everything that they knew would break me down. I didn't know where to go. I could have just stopped right there. That would have been too much, but something came to me and the best way that I can translate it is it told me, let those voices say what they want. As long as you're moving forward, they're not winning. You're winning. Let them play in the background as though a TV were playing in the background, hurling insults at you and telling you how worthless you are. You're not focused on that. What you're focused on is the end result. And the end result was me. I already pictured it. You, you actually taught me this during one of our last conversations, like future casting. Okay. Uh-huh. That when I pictured there was a frame that I had stuck in my head of me walking up to the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. And I kept telling myself, or this voice kept saying, you're already there. You just have to keep moving in that direction. And eventually you're going to catch up to the future that you've already created for yourself. That includes a past that you succeeded. So you just have to keep going. Let that TV play in the background all at once. It's got nothing to say to you. You could listen to it if you want, but it might not even be talking to you. Let it play. Just keep your feet moving. As long as your feet are moving, you haven't given up. So. Have you ever given up on anything in your life that you regretted giving up on? Yeah, when I was younger. All right. And the moment that you gave up, it seemed like a really good idea until perhaps you're sitting in the car on the car ride home and you're like, I, I should have kept going. Yeah. Why did I, why did I stop? I didn't want to live with that because I knew that if I picked up the phone and I said, babe, come and get me. And she came and got me while I'm waiting for her to come get me. I probably would have called her back up and said, no, 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 don't do that. I'm going to keep going. So I just had to wait for that piece to go by. And as long as I was moving while I was doing it, I couldn't be stopped. I was the only one that could stop me. And I would stop myself at the behest of these voices in my head that were simply just the universe trying to see if I was serious about what I was hoping to do. And in showing it that I wouldn't stop and that I would keep going, regardless if I had one leg, if I had to do it on crutches, roller skates, it didn't matter. The universe said, you know what, this, this, he, he deserves what's on the other side. And on the other side is an oasis where the streets are gilded and gold and it's always sunny. I tell you, it, I feel like once you've achieved something like that, you can, you realize that you can absolutely achieve anything. And it doesn't have to be a 400 kilometer run. It doesn't have to be anything ridiculous. It could literally be something that the voices in your head were trying to talk you out of the entire time and you didn't stop. You just kept going. So once anybody's able to do that and succeed at that, I think we all realize that our potential is completely limitless. And more often than not, we're just afraid of how good it can be. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. So, I mean, something, something I've had different things come up for me, things I want to do that to push myself. Um, and the thing that keeps coming up is, is it, am I like the stretch goals, the stretch achievements that you want to achieve? Mm-hmm. But are you over? Are you over? What's the word? 
you go in too big, whereas really you should be going smaller. I mean, how if if somebody rocked up at you and, and said, "Matt, look, I want to work with you. I I want to find out what I'm made of." Where where did they go and where do you point them? You know, it's it's all relative, and and my training, my my fitness coaching and my fitness training isn't necessarily the things that I do on my own. I don't, you know, I'm sure I can coach somebody to do an Ironman, but there's somebody better out there to do that. I'm I'm more of a, a human movement specialist, a corrective exercise specialist. Um, you know, work on on movement economies and, and metabolic efficiencies and things like that. So I could actually work very well with a 90 year old woman that's got a hip replacement and a fake knee and just wants to be able to make it up a flight of stairs. And and that training wouldn't include me screaming at her and calling her a pussy and telling her, you know, well, you just suck it up, Grandma. You can do this. It would be more about you know creating the the right postural mechanics and and, and movement mechanics and you know, things like that. So. I, from, from the human potential standpoint, that all just comes from experience. That doesn't come from education. It doesn't come from a practical application of textbook and, and studies and things like that. It comes from what I know people are made of just because of the stuff that I've been through. So if somebody came to me and said that they, they want to tap that well that we all have, but that we all intentionally cover up the second we see how deep it is, because we know we don't know how far it really goes, and that's a scary thing for a lot of people. I would just want to know what what dreams that they have that scare them. I don't want to, I don't want to impart my dreams or my expectations on them. I want them to grow into what they want to grow into. So my first question is, you know, what, what dreams do you have that scare you? What are, what's something that you want to do that you think is just absolutely ridiculous and work on that. And I, and I would argue that most people are so much closer to that and being able to accomplish something like that than they give themselves credit for again, because there are, I think a lot of people are afraid of actually succeeding and actually accomplishing what it is that they dreamed of, because what happens after that, when I got to DC, it was, there was a morning that took place. I'm standing here after nine days of being away from my family, after every test that I've ever failed, having to take it again inside of my head. I'm standing here and I'm thinking, this is it. Nine days later, I'm done. I want to keep going. So I got, you know, next day I get on the train, I head home and I'm thinking about it. All right, well, what, what can I do? What, what can I do next that would just take me outside of my comfort zone that I know probably won't kill me. Um, a friend of mine is going uh, elk hunting in Colorado in a couple of weeks and he's invited me to go. And we're talking, you know, anywhere from zero to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Sorry, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that equals on the other side of things. But, um, you know, basically cold as balls. And out there with a rifle, a fishing pole, a tent, and a book of matches. I mean, I'm minimalizing it. I mean, you got a couple more things than that, but you're in the woods for a week in, in foreign land, inhospitable environment. Like for me, that, that would be a test for me. I know I can do it. I just have to get my head in the right place. And again, pick a reality in the, in the quantum consciousness that exists where I've actually gotten it done and just put myself there and wait for enough time to pass. So I get there. So for anybody, it's just a matter of find something that 
find something that scares you that you really, really want to do, but you're just afraid that you're not in the right place to do it. I want to start there because I want to, I want to introduce you to the person that you're afraid of meeting because you're afraid of how that's going to change your entire life now that you have to live with a new, with a new reality, with, with a new understanding of, of really what it is that we're capable of doing. We're not just ants that run around and do the same shit over and over and go through the same processes and do the same comfortable things. We are human beings. We were, we were put on this planet to do great things and great things isn't coming up with a new PowerPoint deck that you can send out to a corporation and, and try to get something done. Great things are the things that you know are possible, but don't think that they're probable. And I would argue that anything that is possible is humanly probable. You just have to put your ass in that seat and step on the gas. You say that again, anything that is humanly possible. Anything that is, um, oh man, anything that is humanly possible is in fact humanly probable. And all you have to do is just put yourself in a position to see that. But most people think possible, impossible. It, it, it's it's not like that. There there is there there really is nothing that we can't do. I mean, if you've seen somebody do the four minute mile, was impossible until Roger Bannister did it. Roger Bannister did it. Seventeen people did it in the next year. Who was the second person to run a, set, a four minute mile? Nobody gives a shit. So it, you just have to put yourself in a place where, like, you pick pick what it is that you want to do. If there's a slight chance that you can do it do it. I would have never, you, I, I wasn't a runner. I did, I did, before I ran to DC, I did 56 miles down to Trenton. That was in April. Before that, I did a recreational 22 mile run once. Uh, that was in February, in the middle of a snowstorm. And then prior to that, it was only like 10 miles, 11 miles. This, this isn't something that I've, that I've done, that I've trained for. This, this wasn't, it was just like, I'm probably not going to die. I know that the hardest part about it is going to be talking my way through it. I just have to do that for long enough. If I can do it for an hour, I can do it for two. If I can do it for two, I can do it for a day, so on and so forth. And I've actually got um, signed up for a 100-mile ultra down in Louisiana um, in the middle of November. A friend of mine, I had a conversation with him on his podcast a couple of times, invited me down there. And it's probably the most frightening thing that I've actually had to do so far because one, I'm going to be doing it with somebody else. They're going to be watching me. It's not just my own, you know, it's not just my own impression of myself that I have to deal with. It's this guy's. And number two, I've, I've never trained for a race in my life. Um, I feel like I have to kind of train for this one. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if this affirms what it is that I'm saying, or if it, uh, if it doesn't, but I think, I think all in all, it's it's really just a matter of headspace. You know, if you if you believe you can do something, you can, and if you believe that you can't do something, you're you're also right. Mm. What came up for me then when you were saying that, and it's odd, is two things that popped up for me. One is something called the North Coast Five Hundred, which is around mm -hmm. the north coast of Scotland. It's supposed to be a particularly arduous and raggedy ride, um, leading up to the transcontinental, which is I think it's. 14 or 1300 miles uh, kilometers, um, which is a, a race across like I think seven different countries. I so that's, that yeah, that's that's where I'd love to do. <laughs> so I'm already thinking, okay, stepping stones, North Coast 500, maybe a couple of hundred miles here and there. And then you said 
it's not that way and we're scared of how deep the well is and how that will change us and i've never thought of it that way but that resonated when you said that because that also brought to my mind then a conversation i had with my wife about doing like ayahuasca and mine you know, those plant based ceremonies mm. i'm all up for it and she's like no because i don't know how it'll change me and that's what come through was North Coast 500, transcontinental, and ayahuasca. But isn't it funny how those, you know, I I, I wasn't, aware, like, being a coach, you're aware how change can be scary. But at the same time, we've got our own blind spots. And you just highlighted to me that maybe it is the fact that if I actually do this, it's what will that mean for me and my family and my relationships? Do you know what I mean? Because then all of a sudden I'm, I'm then this person that is like, I know I I, I want to seek adventure, and I yeah. want to I want to be this like person that you know not not so much endurance but it pushes himself like his physical limitations, and I know that scares the crap out of my wife. <laughs> well, it scares the shit out of mine too. I mean, especially after all this. I mean, she was nine days with the kids, and when I got home, I'm like, she's like, "What do you?" please tell me that you're done. And I said, I'm, I'm done. I said, I'm just getting, I just figured out how to drive this thing. Like I'm not done. I'm just, I'm, I'm done driving it in the parking lot. I want to take this thing out on the road. So I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, what can I do? Well, the Pacific coast highway goes from uh, through California, it goes from Mexico all the way up to uh, all the way up to Canada. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll run the PCH. It's like, it's something ridiculous. I'm like, I don't have that kind of time. Maybe I'll bike it. Uh, it's over a thousand miles. She's like, but you don't bike. I was like, but I, but I can. So I just throw a bag on and I'll do it. Or maybe run around the Great Lakes or, or just something great. Because first of all, I want to, I want to experience the world. I want to, I want to meet interesting people. I want to hear interesting languages. I want to experience interesting cultures. I, there's so much beauty in this world that I, I want to see it. The Grand Canyon, I've already seen it, but like I've never been to Mount Kilimanjaro. I, I, like, well, I want to climb that in my underwear, just like Wim Hof does. And if he can do it, I can do it. He even says that. I want to. I want to go to these cool. I've never been to the desert. I've never seen a camel before. Like these are the things that I want to do, and I don't want to do it just by showing up at a at a at a zoo and checking it out. I want to. I want to do something cool while I'm there. If that's trekking across the Sahara or or whatever it is, I, I want to. I want to do it, and the only way that I'm I would ever do it is if I get on the bus and actually go to do it. So back to that thing where you just got your eyes, you just have to find yourself in that space. Stop thinking up to it and, and commit to it. Find yourself there and deal with it after that. So ayahuasca is also something that interests me very much. Now um, I, I've got a, experiences with a lot of different things. Ayahuasca is not one of them, or at least not yet, but I do very much value um, altered states of consciousness in a way. That's why I meditate. That's why I do my breath work. That's why I, you know, I, I just I try to get inside of my head as much as I can because that's where the software is, and I want to I want to utilize that as best as I can. And I think that ayahuasca is a great way to do that, from what I've understand. Aside from like you know the robot uh, midgets and stuff like that that people talk about, but I it scares the shit out of me too. But I can tell you that. You're still going to be recognizable. You're not going to come back and she's going to be like, "Where's the Joel that I used to know?" It's that's all internal. That that's for you. And 
you still have control over your faculties. You still have control over your emotions. But I think what it does is it just it 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 shines a flashlight in a corner of the room that's always been there. You've just never been able to observe it before. And um, you know, I think that that's where the value in, in that kind of stuff is. Um, I don't know. Maybe if uh, if you ever make it over to the U.S. or I ever make it over to Scotland and one of us has ayahuasca in our pocket, let me know. <laughs> definitely, man. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, and it's exciting to see that you you know you're already looking for the next the next challenge. Um, mm. it's, it's it's something like I can already think about that transatlantic race, and the first thing that comes into my head is the the technical side of it. What if something goes wrong with the bike? Do you know what I mean? I'm already fixing the bike. <laughs> and I have right, right. I haven't even, do you know what I mean? It's like, what's that about? But it's it's the emotional state coming in trying to keep me comfortable, safe, everything which I want to push away. Well, the what ifs, you you'll manage them when they come. There, yeah. there, there's no question about that. And I think that we could always paralyze ourselves overthinking anything. Um I didn't think of well I'll put it this way, if I if I did a, a, if I debriefed after getting to Washington D.C. and I said, okay, what, what, everything averse that I experienced, um, I went through two and a half pairs of sneakers on the way down there. Uh, I had to every night I would wash all of my clothes in the hotel sinks or in their bathtubs with the soap that was there. When I ran down there, I had I had three pairs of socks, one of which I was wearing. Uh, one pair of shorts I was wearing, one pair of underwear I was wearing. I had a short sleeve shirt that I was wearing, um, a long sleeve performance shirt, and a very, very thin uh, hooded sweatshirt made out of the same performance materials. That was as far as clothes go and a hat. That was all that I brought. But if I knew that I was going to go through two and a half pairs of shoes, I would have probably brought three pairs of shoes. I wouldn't have been able to run the whole distance with three pairs, two extra pairs of shoes in my bag. But I figured out something that worked along the way. If I knew that I was going to lose those toenails, I would have come with different bandages and this and that. It would have just over-encumbered everything. So yeah. just knowing that you've got the ability to overcome no matter what it is and that our ancestors did it, Indians did it, cavemen did it, tribesmen do it, um, you'll, you'll figure most of that shit out. And again, it's those are those are the different layers of challenge that the universe I think puts in front of you to see if you're even trying. And if you over prepare, you can bet your ass you didn't prepare for everything. Um, the universe will make sure of that. And if you under prepare, you're almost setting yourself up for an early and meaningful test where you're, you know, you'll have to show the universe early that you're that you're fully committed and that nothing is going to stop you. But I think that I, I don't know if you can ever plan on where exactly it is that you're going to hit that wall or you're going to hit that turbulence, or you're really going to have to force your way through. Um, I think if you look for it, you'll never find it. You just have to expect that it'll be there somewhere along the way. Um, but you can't plan for that. I mean, if you for the transcontinental, just somebody does it with the bare minimum. So get you know maybe a little bit better than the bare minimum and um and get your ass to the starting line you'll figure the rest out okay all right Emma. i think I'm, I'm gonna start digging into that and actually looking what that looks like so uh good yeah i'm not sure yeah that's if the covid thing chills out a bit <laughs> actually well that just started um i, I don't know 
much about the uh, the Big Island's politics over there, but I know that um, isn't Boris ratcheting things back down a little bit over there. He's calmed us back down with um with with a local lockdown. Even if we were in lockdown, we'd be locked down because we're trapped by other states, other right. counties, like you know. So now, how is that affecting you guys? Um, I mean, you came out of the woods a little bit. What did that look like? And then what is the what is this new kind of shutdown look like for you? Uh, things seem to be functioning normally. I mean, there's more traffic on the roads than there was before. Um, you know, everyone seems to be going about their business. It's just the rules are back in place where previously it was a little bit more relaxed. You know, you could, like, I've got family that lives in the next county up. So, you know, that's off limits and another bits and bobs. But it's. How do you feel about that? Yeah, frustrated. You know? It's uh, yeah. It's it. It's got it's got implications, uh, mostly to do with uh, most mostly emotional ones. It's uh, you know, sure. it's, it's family on the other side, so it's being able to access them and and uh, connect. Connections is is what it's all about, now, you know. Um, yeah. Do you guys have a? Is he giving any indication as to what the metrics are that that they follow? And you know, when it gets, you know, say that the positivity rate reaches a certain amount, A, B, and C is going to happen, or do you feel like it's rather vague and ambiguous right now? Vague and ambiguous right now. <laughs> it's the same thing over here in um, in the state of New Jersey, it's, and that's very frustrating for a lot of people because it seems as though, you know, we'll hit a certain number. I'll, I'll give you an example. Back in uh, July. The governor of New Jersey had stated that they were going to reopen indoor dining at 25%. And then a week later, he squashed that. He said two days before that was supposed to happen. He said, nope, I'm going to pull that back. Things haven't been right. Everybody lost their minds. Then three or four weeks later, uh, a journalist had asked him, you know, hey, listen, today the numbers are actually lower than they were when you first suggested reopening indoor dining things are better now than they were when you made the decision back then why aren't you reopening them now and he came up with some you know protracted bullshit excuse about like why things are different now but but that's frustrating for a lot of people because you know when you're dealing with such a large constituency you want to be able to i want to be able to look and say okay listen the spot positivity rate is 3.2 percent he said if it gets under three percent we'll be able to reopen a b and c but nobody's giving data like that. It seems to be very, it seems to be a little bit too fluid and a little bit too subjective yeah. for my liking. It, 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 it's just, I don't, I feel like we're in large part, they're giving us the impression that we're not looking at hard science. We're looking at hard opinion and that the, the inherent biases of the powers that be are the ones that are, are really governing how this whole thing unfolds as opposed to the actual science, the data and the matrices. So I, I understand your frustration. We're dealing with that over here in New Jersey. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, not, not keep this light on the political side, the Northeast part of the United States, particularly because it's a metro area is generally more of a progressive, more liberal, uh, more democratic, you know, democratically leaning portion of the country. Um, counter to a lot of my own personal, I'm, I'm a little bit more conservative, um, certainly a little bit more conservative, and it makes me extremely uncomfortable that this whole part, the whole, not the whole rest of the country, but large parts of the rest of our country are 
are rather conservative and they're not, I feel like they're not being treated like children. I feel like that they've actually got things that they can rely on data and dates and um, up here in the Northeast, it's, it's not like that at all. So I'm hoping that in this evolution, in this quantum leap that I'm about to take allows me the ability and the freedom to, to perhaps move my family to a place that's a little bit more in line with, um, you know, with, with, with my opinion, and my wife's opinion about things. Yeah. That's got to be so. That's got to be frustrating. I mean, what, what do you guys see as being a light at the end of the tunnel over here? There's a lot of talk about it happening right after the election that the virus is going to go away after uh, you know, the presidential election here in November. Is there any talk of something like that there, where like American politics is governing the UK COVID policy, or is that something not, that not that I can see? No, uh, no doubt there is. Like if I if I was to read into stuff, it, it would probably be there. But this, it's not. It doesn't seem to be that stark for us. Um, Good. I'm actually happy about that. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, I do know why, and it's because you know over here the media really rules, and um, you know they set the narrative, and the media setting a narrative of you know whether it's going to be after election or before election. It's nice for me to know, and I think for other Americans to know that perhaps this isn't just an American thing. Um, that you know UK COVID policy has nothing to do with American politics and um, the virus is still very much real. People are still reacting to it in the ways that they see appropriate. And I'll use off camera air quotes for that. No, yeah, it's a, it's a strange time, but uh, I'm just, I, I, I'm still trying to keep, it's, it's hard to know you said in the beginning, oh, they didn't deem your business uh, a necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, mental health and fitness Go hand in hand, uh, and we're seeing it now with kids. You know, the kids are kids are struggling. You know, um, are you um, kids over there doing uh, homeschooling or some sort of hybrid learning? They they did do uh, online learning for a bit. We pulled ours out because, um, yeah, we just pulled ours out and decided to homeschool all three. Um, so homeschool using using a separate curriculum than that's what's provided by the state. Yeah, you got it. You can. There's, there's different ways and different means of doing it. Like there's some people let their children lead the learning, um, but you've still got to be able to show the state that you're educating to a degree. Um, whether that falls into the boundary lines of maths, English, science, and which is, which is the frustrations I'm coming up against is sometimes it doesn't have to be so clinical as a subject. You mm-hmm. can teach them cooking and cover science, maths, English grammar do you know what I mean it's uh I, I do uh, and it's very much the same here in the states um where we can do the same thing uh, we could go off on can you hear me yeah awesome i don't know i apologize for that uh, where we do have to meet certain standards in order for you know children to have sufficiently been home educated and homeschooled the interesting thing is, and I feel like I feel like it's not talked about enough, is that at least here in America, the whole purpose of public education happened right around the Industrial Revolution for us. And it was when these factories and these companies realized that in order for their workers to sufficiently do their jobs, they needed a baseline education. So they would teach math for the people that would need to know formulas and, and you know, mathematics in order to perform their jobs. They would teach science for the chemists and the people that had exposure to 
other science-related fields to be able to do their job, the reading and the writing, to read instruction manuals and write reports. It was very much focused around the ability to perform work for these large factories. And when the government gets involved and says, this is great, let's nationalize it, which is usually a, a kiss of death, at least over here it is. And, um, and they take it and, and they run with it. And now they're teaching, you know, they, they teach kids in a manner that is, they expect to just be accepted by most people because most people are lemmings and they just do what the guy in front of them is doing. But, you know, when they get into topics like sex education and other things like that here in the States, there's a pretty stark contrast between two different philosophies. And there's certain things that I want my children to learn at home that I don't want some stranger, particularly a man, talking to my two daughters about certain things. Um, I don't even want them to have that kind of relationship or that kind of comfort level where they can have that kind of conversation, not least of which in sixth grade. Um and, uh, you know, it's, it's become frustrating for us as well. My wife is a third grade teacher and she sees it from the inside and she, you know, she's a good team player and she's, uh, she's an educator. She's not a teacher. So she takes a lot of pride and passion in what she does. Uh, but for her, it's also frustrating because she sees how it is on the inside of things. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a scary place. I, I commend you for taking that, that leap into the unknown and homeschooling your kids as opposed to, um, using what it is that the state would recommend for you whether it's right or wrong i think it's a bold move and uh, not enough people out there are making bold moves that are in the best interest of their families when um, you know you're certainly taking on an increased workload for things like that and you know it's it's got to be a whole lot harder than it would have been otherwise if you kept them in the school so i, I think mm. you deserve a lot of credit for that thanks man it's uh it's it's positioning ourselves for where we want to be you know, a year or two down the road, which is mm-hmm. like eventually, like, do you know what? When you, do you know, when you were saying about what you want to experience, it's almost like you read my journal. <laughs> I swear not. Like, it was the words that the words you were using, the places you wanted to go, the things you wanted to see. It, it was, we're so aligned with what we want to actually, you know, be able to touch in our, in our, in our life. And uh, the, the, the pulling them out to school a bit. 15 and 14 the kids are we didn't want to be in a position um should things move quite quickly to then be asking the state can we have holiday here because we want to go away it's so right. actually no they come in with us anyway and we'll educate on the go <laughs> right right <laughs> you know so that's that's the intent behind this to try and build the life that we like you said about future scaping we're trying to put all the little things in place like i've left my job like that that was a huge move for me um I've got all this training behind me that I'm trying to understand my own value and how I can help others and, and everything else and grow my coaching business. Um, and my wife's doing the same with the uh, MLM, so the networking, marketing thing. So it's all coming did together. Say, did, you, did you say M&M? Uh, M- MLM, I think that's the thing. MLM. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. The reason I ask is because there's not there's a place not too far from here where um, Eminem Morris has their headquarters, their their international headquarters. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. But, okay, I got you. I know. I I heard what you said. So yeah, the pieces of the old layers just putting it all together, so we can we can do what we need to do and go see what we want to see. Good. Well, you you got to be you got to be in it to win it, and it seems like uh, you're fully committed. So you just have to let enough time pass, so that way. Uh, you know, the, the, the current you catches up with the future. You, you've already created that future. It's, it's waiting there for you. Just don't stray. 
Do, yeah, do you know, that, and that's the biggest thing I'll take away from this conversation. I want to, I want to thank you for. I'll be respectful of your time. I know you've got to shoot now, so I'll, I'll get to it. Thank you very much for coming on today. Appreciate your your sharing your journey and being so open and honest with you know your struggles and that you went through for your business. Um, and actually sharing, you know, coming up against that wall inside your head when you was on that run, um, and being so open and honest with it. The biggest Thank thing I'll you. take away, sorry, I just the biggest thing I want to take away is is the fact that you know becoming the person you want to be is about putting the steps in place and allowing that time. Because I have strived and I've pushed it away, and I've seen that in action when I've actually taken pause and breathed and actually slowed things down. All mm-hmm. the seeds that I've sown did actually, you know, fruition come. But I needed to slow my ass down for that to happen. Because we're, we're constantly striving and pushing and, and trying to achieve. And right, we've done that right now, the next thing. Sometimes you just need a pause, right. <laughs> you know. So thank you. you. Know, no, of course. Thank you. Um, one of the things, one of the mantras that I would tell myself over and over uh, when I was hitting some pretty low lows was, and I would repeat it to myself over and over again, was, I'm already here. I'm just waiting for you to show up. Is that I'm already here. I'm just waiting for you to show up. and I, I got the sense that it was it was a voice for me being in the future, letting me know that as long as I keep moving, that I'm going to get exactly where it is that I want to be. But you have to be moving in order to get there. So much like I had described before, when you know, there was literally a photo, an image in my mind of me standing in front of the Washington Monument, like in pace. And I knew that if this reel kept playing, that this video would catch right up to that image and I would pick right up from there, that that image would have been a future untold if I had quit at any given time. And I knew that it was there and I saw it. I create, I future cast it. It was already there. In order for me to not have achieved that, I would have had to abandon the past that existed between that point and where I was at that particular moment. So. If you feel like you're not, if, if you're not sure if you're on the right path, the fact that you're moving is most important because you are on the right path. You're going to make decisions that you might feel are inconsequential to the outcome a thousand times a day. And they're all consequential to the outcome. And they could be something as simple as picking something that you wouldn't have ordinarily picked out of your fridge, which would have given you a particular thought. All of your being is devoted to a particular goal when all of your being is devoted to a particular goal all of your decisions in one way or another are going to affect that so just have to have faith in the fact that you will get exactly to where it is that you want to go but you're not going to get there by sitting still so so just don't stop moving don't question your own motives and don't worry about how deep that well is because that deep that will is hopefully infinitely deep. You just have to trust in your ability to tread water long enough to be able to to be able to survive until the moment comes that you've been waiting for. So listen, it takes balls to leave a job that's paying you on a regular basis and do what you do. It takes balls for your wife to do the same thing, with all due respect, you know what I'm saying? It takes it, it takes 
it takes a trust of the unknown after you've overcome that fear of the unknown. But those are those little tests that the universe is putting you through in order to see if you are in fact worthy of having that, that prayer answered, that wish answered. That was, you know, you leaving your job to do what you're doing now is very much like me looking down at my feet at my broken, bruised feet and causing my foot another step rather than stopping because it was comfortable. And because I got an A on that test, the universe says I should start paying more attention to this guy. He's not asking for an A on a math test. He's asking me for a life-changing goal. And in order for you to be provided with that life-changing goal, you need to make life-changing decisions. They're going to be fucking scary. They're supposed to be. Because those are the prayers and those are the wishes that get answered, not the cheesy little ones that, you know, get asked a million times a day. So as long as you keep showing the universe that you're committed, it's going to keep testing you. And I know that. But there will become a point where you will get through that cave, that chasm, get over that wall, and all of a sudden it'll be over and you'll be in that paradise where the sun is always shining and the streets are gilded in gold. But you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when it sucks and even when it hurts. Don't listen to the voices in your head. You have to listen to the voice that doesn't even speak a language. It speaks in an emotion. And you just have to follow that because that's what's going to take you through. When you see the rain on the horizon and you know that that's a storm that you have to walk through, just fucking go. Just find yourself in the middle of it. You'll make it through. And I think that that's... I think that you've passed all the tests so far. And I, and I, uh, I told you before, I look forward to seeing kind of where, where you end up with everything. Cause I know it's going to be great. And I know that it's not going to be great for me. I just know that for you, it's going to feel like the greatest success that you've ever achieved. And, and I look forward to talking to you after, uh, after you've achieved it. Yeah, Matt, you, you will be the first person I ring. <laughs> I hope so. I appreciate that. No, it's, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to your journey too, man. It's, uh, I think what you're doing and, and you know pushing those boundaries and limitations of, of our mind and our physical body, just keep doing that because you're a, a source of inspiration to me and, and many others out there, no doubt. Um, Thank you. And just makes us question, which is a good thing, what is possible, you know? And that's, that's the question that we need to be asking over and over. Everything, everything. And I want to interject one more thing. So if you... If you know anything about quantum physics, you know when, when we talk about like wave function and Schrodinger's cat and things like that, the fact is is that everything exists all right now at the same time. There are an infinite number of of possibilities, of realities that we all live at any one given moment. And the reality that I'm experiencing with you right now is a different reality than you're experiencing with me right now. The fact is that the reality that exists to us is the reality that we perceive. So we can't determine the direction or the location of a particle simultaneously. We can only determine one. Right. We can't we can't observe both at any particular time. But once we observe it, its waveform collapses and waveform is just the probability of, of a particle being in a particular place at a particular time. But the same holds true for our reality. And though we're made up of many particles, our perception is very much the same. So. 
the reason why things seem to be the way they are is because you're looking at them as such. And it's not a matter of, you know, putting the shoe on the other foot or looking at it through somebody else's eyes, but it's very much believing that only one particular reality exists. And that's a reality that, that you want to exist. People that are miserable will always be miserable because that's the reality that they choose to observe. The, you could, the only difference between somebody that likes chocolate and somebody that doesn't like chocolate is, you know, you can just decide that you don't like chocolate today. You can just decide that you want to be happy today or that you want to be miserable today. It's what reality do you want to observe? Because it's, that's the reality that will appear real to you. So if the reality that you choose to observe is one of success and one of progress and one of happiness and one of abundance, then that's really going to be the one that exists for you. So you pick and, and it seems as though you've made your choice and that you've chosen just remember why you chose that and and don't ever let any of the tests that come from outward change the path that you're on because that's all that they are. Those aren't signs that you're on the wrong path. Those are tests to see if you're committed to the path that you're on. So just make sure that you observe the reality that it is that you want to experience because you're inevitably going to experience the reality that you observe. So just keep on keeping on, man. Love it, man. It's a beautiful place to leave it. So I want to thank you today for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave your uh, your links in the in the in the show notes for this. Would you do you want to tell the people where they can find you, Matt? Sure, you can find me. Um, I just started an online blog. I hope uh, I'm fortunate enough to start a podcast. Uh, but you can find me and more information about me at mattscarfo.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Matt Scarfo, um, or my YouTube channel, which I'm starting to populate more and more every day. It's simply uh, YouTube, and um, my username for YouTube is M Scrappy backwards. So it's Y P P A R C S M uh, M Scrappy backwards at YouTube. Um, I'll get I'll get around to changing that at one point in time. But uh, if you Google Matt Scarfo, New Jersey, you, you'll you'll end up finding me. Show me some support. Give me some criticism. Let me know. Um, let me know how I can provide more value to to you and to everybody else. And um, I'm happy to take everything that I know and everything that I've learned and, uh, and make it accessible to as many people out there that are interested in accessing it. So uh, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your attention, Joel. Thank you. The pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. Maybe we'll get you back on in the future if you're up for it. That'd be great. I appreciate that. Okay. All the best, man. Thanks, buddy. You too. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Joel Ingram, and I am a certified NLP coach. I help passionate, resourceful, and professional people who feel stuck and unfulfilled with aspects of life to rewrite their narrative and chronicle a new, engaging, and captivating future. Please subscribe if you found benefit.